Hello, and welcome to The Scope. Our student-run and recorded podcast is put on by the Student Collaborative on Health Policy, a student group that works with the Duke Margolis Center on all health policy-related matters. What's up? My name is Alex Hong, and I'm a rising sophomore at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Krishna Udayakumar. Dr. Udayakumar is the Associate Director for Innovation at the Duke Global Health Institute, an Associate Professor of Global Health and Medicine, and the director of the Duke Global Health Innovation Center. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Alex. Good to be with you. Great. So for our first question, what are your overall thoughts, let's say a diagnosis of the U.S. healthcare system today? Yeah, I think you know, there's a lot that is good about the U.S. health system, but I think the, the first place to start is really that it's not a cohesive system in, in many ways, and that's the challenge. While we're trying to optimize many of the components, it's really hard to put them together into something that makes sense from a holistic perspective. A lot of my work is looking at health systems from a global perspective. And what we see there are that the U.S., by almost any measure, is uh, not doing so well, right? We spend more per capita and as a percent of GDP than any other country in the world on healthcare, and yet we don't have the health outcomes that we might expect to see because of that. So we're generating very little value for the level of resources that we're putting into the system. That's the, to me, the the biggest issue that, that we've got to deal with. Great. Our next question is, I see that you do a lot of research with medical innovation. So in your opinion, is it driven by technology, people, policy of reform, or any other factors? When we think about innovation, you know, that's an overused term often. And so we try to really think about framing innovation around a business model or a value proposition. So who are you helping in what way? And coming back to this idea of value, we try to anchor everything on cost, quality, and access. So for me, a really interesting innovation is one that serves a clear value to real customers and that from an overall health system perspective can help us manage the overall costs, can make that more affordable to the people that are accessing the system, increasing access, and also improving quality along the way. What we often see when we think about innovation are really interesting widgets and apps and all these things that from a technical perspective, can work quite well, but they don't have the integration to workflows. They don't have the integration into our data systems. And so what they end up doing is actually creating a more complex and more fragmented system. So innovation is really, to me, about how are you helping people? How are you creating a model that's generating value and doing it with a business model that's creating scalability and sustainability to it. Do you believe there's any one factor that could really help improve innovation? Or do you think it will need to be a combination of things between like technology and policy and things like that? Yeah, the more and more work we do, what we see is that it's really an integration of multiple domains that's necessary for innovation to have real impact. So we definitely have to invest in interesting technology and other types of innovation, whether that's financing, workforce, infrastructure even. But what we've started to generate as a high-value health systems framework is really the idea that there are four domains that intersect and have to work together. 
the first is the policies. So you've got to have policies at a regional, national, subnational level that make sense, uh, that actually are going to give people incentives to create value and that allow flexibility to innovate around things like scope of practice or otherwise. The second domain is financing. At the end of the day, if something's not paid for effectively and with the right incentives, it's not going to work or it's not going to scale or it's not going to sustain. So we've got to create the payment, the reimbursement, the financing models that are going to help to drive innovation sustainably. The third is that we've got to really worry about the competencies and capabilities of our health system. So we can't just flip the switch and say, we're going to hold you responsible for total cost of care tomorrow, but we're not going to give you the tools, the data systems, the ability to make changes that allow you to actually control what we're going to measure you against. So we've got to build new competencies, including leadership, including data systems, including financial wherewithal that allow our health systems to be better oriented toward moving in that direction. And then finally, the fourth domain is really from the delivery innovation side. Then if you've got these three other things, the policies, the financing, the competencies, you really have a great enabling environment into which you can innovate, into which you can actually scale and then start to show the real impact over time. Awesome. In your work with certain global health groups and your studies around the world, there have been some examples of frugal delivery, which are new ways of addressing healthcare that might not have totally been existent before, such as telemedicine or paying per procedure. Do you see this as well contributing to a bigger role in American healthcare? Because before COVID, we didn't really have much of this type of implementation. Yeah, frugal innovation, I think, is really a field that can help us to innovate sustainably. In the U.S., our problem is not by any means that we're not spending enough to generate better health outcomes. It's that we're spending in all the wrong ways and not bringing the different pieces together effectively. So using this sense of frugal innovation, which is how can we do more with less for many. So as a simple construct of, if you approached innovation with a lens of frugality, what would you actually see? So as an example, take Narayana Health. It's a health system that's based in Bangalore, India, and it's run by a gentleman called Devashetti. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon who trained in the UK and about 20 years ago started to see the enormous need in India and moved back and created what now has become one of the largest healthcare delivery systems in India. And one of his famous sayings is, if an innovation is not sustainable, it's not a real solution. So he wants to make sure that there is affordability built in from the beginning. And what that means is what they have been able to create models of high quality, low cost innovation. So they can do very advanced care delivery, including open heart surgeries, cardiothoracic procedures and can do uh, bypass surgeries with the same clinical outcomes as we might expect in the US. And rather than paying 50, 75, $100,000 for an open heart surgery, like we see in the US, they're doing it for $2,000. So really massively lower costs on a per case basis. And they have innovated around not just ensuring quality of care, but on ensuring that they're reducing the total costs over time, um, because they make that a critical component of their own mission. So those are the types of organizations and innovations that we think we really should be learning more from. And if we can bring those lessons to the US and start to shave off percentage points from our total cost of care, 
we can then start to generate real value that can become more scaled over time. Yeah, I think that's a great point. In America, we have a rather complex system with insurance companies and hospitals and also patients as well. In your opinion, do you see there ever being a compromise where we can start to have insurance, but also incorporate sort of these more grocery type services for medicine, such as like going and getting a procedure instead of going through all the bureaucracy and framework of the current current insurance system? Yeah, I'm optimistic in that there are multiple pathways to really start to see change in the U.S. system, right? As long as we don't say the only way to change is to create some national policy change that has to flow down to every state, that's few and far between. But we are starting to see in the U.S., like around the world, that the states, the subnational levels, really where a lot of innovation happens. So state by state, we're starting to see really interesting models emerge. We're starting to see that there are archetypes of how states may approach healthcare in an effective way. There's no single solution, but there are different pathways to making that happen. We're also seeing with CMMI that- Quick side note, CMMI stands for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. It's part of the U.S. government, and its purpose is to test payment and delivery system models that can improve costs. Now back to the podcast. That there are now national pathways to trying new things that are oriented toward value. And we also see opportunities with commercial payers who are starting to think more in this space as well. So whether you're coming at this from a payer lens, a provider lens, a policy lens, what we have seen from studying change around the world is that you've got to start somewhere, that you can't wait for the perfect opportunity and you can't wait for the perfect solution. As long as you can get a group of people and committed stakeholders agreeing to what a general vision looks like and where we're trying to go, you can really start anywhere. So we see some models that are anchored on primary care and saying, if we get primary care right, then the rest of it can hang off of that anchor point. Others are really looking at thinking about specialty care or chronic disease management for specific populations. That's an, another place to start and then build out a system from there. And then more mature systems are really thinking about population health more broadly and all the innovations that are needed to get to that state. So the, the real learning from all of this is there's no single answer and there's no single pathway. It's that you've got to have commitment and a shared vision and it's going to take a while. So you've got to have committed leadership and change management is really important in this process. Yeah, speaking of primary care, currently we know that private insurers can really drive up the prices for some services. So do you believe niche startups like concierge medicine or direct primary care, specifically for this realm, will ever take off and maybe even replace private insurers? Yeah, primary care is really critical to the future of healthcare and health systems in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, there was a report from the World Health Organization and the World Bank looking at progress toward universal health coverage that really also pointed out that primary care is make or break of whether the world ever reaches universal health coverage. And that is also the case here in the U.S., that if we don't have comprehensive, sustainable, and effective primary care, the rest of the system isn't really going to make a difference. We are seeing lots and lots of different models of primary care. In some instances, you've got big integrated delivery networks that have started to build out larger models of primary care. In others, we see venture-backed models of primary care that really are trying to support independent practices through management support, through the data systems, and the like. So again, 
it's great to see different models of innovation. It's great to see private capital being invested. It's great to see states also getting into the mix of thinking about different models that they might support. And we've also seen private payers get into that space as well as trying to figure out what the future of primary care may look like. And in fact, we've been doing more and more work, and we just published a paper a couple of months ago all about what are the trends that are going to help define the future of primary care based on evaluating the best primary care models that we see around the world. So we describe models that are scaling in places like Mexico and Rwanda and Nepal and all across sub-Saharan Africa, everything from uh, an organization like One Family Health in Rwanda that's created a public-private partnership of nurse-owned and operated franchise clinics across peri-urban and rural Rwanda to an organization like North Star Alliance that has, up and down the trucking corridors of sub-Saharan Africa, converted shipping containers to to serve as primary care clinics, or a model called Casalud in Mexico that's supported by the Carlos Slim Foundation that has scaled to something like 12,000 clinics to be able to offer all of the support that primary care providers need to be more effective and more impactful in their work. So I'm really enthusiastic that we're starting to see more and more innovation in primary care because that can help drive much more value-oriented health systems in the future. Just wondering, um, all these different organizations you talked about, were they part of the social entrepreneurship accelerator at Duke? I think SEED, uh, you mm-hmm. work, did some work with that organization as well, right? That's right. So the SEED program was one where over a period of five years, we selected and worked with 25 innovators, half of them in India and the other half operating in East Africa, And they were all early to growth stage health enterprises that were doing really interesting work and trying to scale. And what we were able to do is bring expertise from Duke Health, from the Fuqua School of Business and all different parts of Duke to be able to apply to say, what do health systems actually need? What does an innovation ecosystem look like? And if you're a social enterprise trying to create these new models, what does it actually take to scale? So we ran a five-year accelerator programs, both to directly support those enterprises, but also to bring learnings for lots of other people operating in this space. In addition, we've got a nonprofit that we've now hosted here at Duke for the last 10 years that's called Innovations in Healthcare. And there we've grown a network of 104 of these social enterprises that are operating in almost 100 countries. So we've got really a pulse on what the cutting edge of innovation looks like all over the world, especially innovation that's oriented toward equity, toward meeting needs in low resource settings and for vulnerable populations around the world. So I guess a pretty pressing question for American healthcare. Will we ever find a compromise between Medicare for all and a purely insurance-based system? This seems to be the cause of a lot of medical gridlock in Washington today. Yeah, I think, again, I'd go back to say there's probably not a single solution that's going to work across the U.S. uh, And I'm not sure there's a single best solution out there anyway. So some of the models we've seen really have to do with bringing together the best of what a public sector can do with what the private sector can do as well. So we see models of, for example, public financing of private delivery as one type of model because there tends to be stronger incentives and stronger drive to innovate in the private sector. But the public sector tends to serve a much stronger role in taking innovation to scale. So it's not really one or the other, it's but 
It's much more how do you position the role of the public sector and the role of the private sector to both work effectively. And often it requires trusted third parties, it requires intermediaries, integrators of sorts within health systems to try to bring different players together in cooperative ways as opposed to competitive ways. Could you maybe give an example of a case where this has actually worked in the U.S. before or maybe in a different country? Yeah, one example, again, from our global perspective is in from another high income country we can talk about is Germany. And uh, there's a region of Germany, fairly rural, called uh, Kinzigtal. And and there's an organization, Gesundes Kinzigtal, that looked at this idea of fragmented health systems, private insurance, uh, multiple healthcare delivery providers, and created a model, Gesundes Kinzigtal, that actually created a layer of a management company as the integrator. So it allowed the provider organizations to remain independent, but partially own this thin layer of integration across it. It also built out the data capabilities so that providers could share data with each other and with the public and private payers along the way. And it then also was able to make sure that it was aligned to value-based payment models that actually aligned with the right incentives with the providers. So if you've got buy-in from a provider community, if you can create incentives that are aligned, if you can create the competencies in terms of the data systems, um, then you can be off and running and try some really interesting models that, uh, that can work over time. We've seen similar types of things happen in the US and we're starting to see more and more investment uh, really moving into innovation that is achieving scale. We're seeing huge growth in digital health companies and a consolidation as they're starting to mature. So they are reaching real impact at, at fairly large population levels now and having to be integrated into broader health systems. So I think those are some of the interesting trends, as well as the, uh, the private capital that's being deployed to, to create new models of primary care as well. So through your research with global health systems, do you think there's one takeaway or one thing that like, if we really had in the US, it would solve a lot of problems with the US healthcare system? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there's no you know, single place to say, oh, if we just did what Switzerland is doing, we'd somehow solve everything, for example. What I tend to see looking globally is that health systems and governance tends to reflect the culture of the society that it serves. Uh, we tend to have more of a private sector driven model than the UK, for example. So it's not really that one or the other is the right model. But what we can learn is that you've got to have integration and you've got to have some shared goals that are much more about improving the care experience and outcomes for our communities and our patients than it is about churning volumes of services along the way. The second thing I'd really emphasize is we see more and more that health and healthcare are by no means the same thing. People care about their health. Healthcare is one small way we have of impacting people's health. So the countries that tend to have the best health outcomes are ones that actually invest significantly in the things that drive health, which are largely outside of healthcare delivery. All the data would show that you've got to look at everything from housing to education to access to social services. So the countries that are taking that more holistic perspective of making sure that there are access to services and resources that impact health, not just healthcare, are the ones that are 
producing the best health outcomes. Right. There's a big push these days with social determinants of health um, in the healthcare field because mm -hmm. people have really seen that this can really impact the overall health of people um, in ways that may not just be directly seen in like a doctor's office. So would you say that definitely needs to be uh, more pushed for the U.S. healthcare system? Absolutely. We do talk uh, more and more now about the social determinants of health or the social drivers. We're also starting to better understand the role of things like structural racism and inequities driving poor health outcomes much beyond what our healthcare delivery system, frankly, can take on. So the more we're stepping back and really thinking about the needs for population health, the better we'll be able to align resources. So investing more and more money in acute care delivery isn't going to get us better health outcomes. We've shown that for decades now. So rethinking where we're investing and how we're investing our, uh, our health resources is going to be really important. And this can help with many things, even domestically, such as vaccine hesitancy and distribution these days, right? Oh, for sure. What we've seen is that the, the COVID pandemic has created enormous pressure on our health systems and has unearthed a lot of the challenges and weaknesses that we have, including the way that we're serving our communities, the level of trust that different communities have in our health systems. We know that we weren't nearly where we needed to be in terms of preparedness. So overinvestment in the care delivery side, underinvestment in public health clearly has played out. Our lack of movement from a policy and regulatory and reimbursement perspective to move virtual care where it needs to be have all been, been demonstrated uh, throughout this pandemic. And I guess as a wrap-up question, what do you like doing in your free time? Ah, uh, well, <laughs> I've got a, a six-year-old and a three-year-old, so it keeps uh, life interesting and quite busy. So uh, we love to go out uh, hiking or, or do other uh, stuff outside uh, uh, as a family. So that, that's always fun here in North Carolina. This episode was written and produced by me, Alex Hong. Thank you to Josie and Ashna, our editors-in-chief and the entire Scope team. If you have any questions or ideas for future episodes, message us on Twitter at Duke Scope. That's Duke S-C-O-H-P. Thanks again for listening and hope to see you in the next one.